Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us for another busy show just ahead on the program this Wednesday. Deadly strike, at least 10 lives lost, dozens injured after a Russian missile attack in eastern Ukraine. Russian shelling intensifying as Kyiv claims its counteroffensive is making progress. We've got the very latest coming up. Plus, flight fright. Wicked weather in the U.S. Northeast triggering travel chaos coast to coast. More than 9,000 flights cancelled on Tuesday alone. Dense smoke from Canadian wildfires once again not helping either. Today's flight outlook just ahead. And then the Sintra Summit. Central bank heavy hitters, including Fed Chair Jerome Powell and European Central Bank head Christine Lagarde, sit down for a panel discussion at a conference in Portugal later this hour. We're on Sintra Surprise Watch, looking for comments on things like interest rates, of course, and the inflation outlook. And as investors wait for signals, U.S. stock market futures are softer. After Tuesday's broad-based rally, the S&P 500, in fact, notching its best session in two weeks. And the Dow closing in the green for the first time in seven sessions. Although U.S.-China tensions creating a chip dip this Wednesday amid reports that the U.S. is mulling export curbs on sophisticated artificial intelligence-related chips to China. Industry leaders, NVIDIA and other chip names like AMD, lower in pre-market trade. And a mixed day, too, for stock markets over and across Asia amid weaker Chinese data. Industrial profits, that's companies' profits, sinking almost 20% year over year. Beijing perhaps needing to show a friendlier face to overseas business amid the economic uncertainty. And, well, President Xi Jinping pledging today that China will protect the rights of foreign investors. We discuss the outlook and the opportunity with the CEO of HKEX, which owns the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, later this hour. A busy show coming up, as always. We do begin, though, in Ukraine. And the country's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, calling the deadly strike on Kramatorsk, quote, a manifestation of terror. Two Russian missiles struck the eastern city on Tuesday, one hitting a busy city centre, the other a village nearby. Among the victims, a baby and these teenage twin sisters who had just graduated from the eighth grade. Ben Weidman is in eastern Ukraine for us this morning. Ben, good to have you with us. Were they targeting or were they targeting here um, military installations or disease? Are they appear to be um, directly targeting of civilians, Ben? 
Civilians. It's a, Julia, it's a, it's a restaurant. In fact, the CNN crew was there day before yesterday having lunch. It's a restaurant that's popular with local residents as well as soldiers. So it's usually full of both of those types of people. Now, the death toll at this point, according to local officials, is at least 10. Among them, a 17-year-old girl and twin 14-year-old sisters who had just graduated from eighth grade. In addition to that, at the moment, at least 61 people wounded, including an eight-month-old baby. Now, the rescue, the search and rescue operation is continuing. Uh, we did speak to some of those workers who told us that at this point their expectation is if anybody's under the ruins, they are more likely dead than alive. Now, last night, uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky, in his nightly address, said he believed that this restaurant, this area, was hit by an S-300 surface-to-air missile. These are missiles that are very inaccurate, normally used to take down aircraft. Uh, but now it turns out that it was an Iskander missile, which is a hypersonic ballistic uh, missile that is very difficult for radar to detect, let alone air defenses uh, to bring down. And it's also much more precise. So it may be that the Russians had a target in mind, whether it was this restaurant or something in the area, but this is a civilian area. There are homes, apartment buildings, a post office nearby, a jewelry shop around the corner. There's no obvious military target in this area. Julia? Ben Weedman there. Thank you for that report. An unrest in the streets of France overnight after a traffic stop ended with the death of a teenager. I want to warn you, what you're about to see is disturbing. Video shows two police officers beside a car in a Paris suburb. The driver pulls away, then a shot is fired. Police say a 17-year-old boy refused to comply with an order to stop. Authorities say an officer has been detained. The shooting triggered violent protests with cars and rubbish cans set on fire and bus stops destroyed. French President Emmanuel Macron called the shooting unjustifiable. I would like to express the emotion of the entire nation at the death of young Nael and give his family our solidarity and the affection of the nation. We need calm for justice to carry out its work and we need calm everywhere because the situation, we can't allow the situation to worsen. Melissa Bow joins us now. Melissa, some individuals certainly making their anger and their judgment of the situation felt overnight with those protests. Um, but what more do we know about exactly what happened? Well, two different accounts of events, and I think this is part of what's fueled uh, the flames of the anger as quickly as it has, is the existence of that video that you just so showed, Julia. Over the last few years, there have been several high-profile cases here in France of uh, uh, traffic stops or identity checks leading uh, to violent confrontations between the police and often unarmed civilians, as was the case here. Young Nile was just 17 years old. He and two other passengers were pulled over that police check. Moments later, he was fired on. And there seems to have been some discrepancy with what police sources were telling us earlier in the day and what then emerged from close examination of that uh, video. Now, one of those uh, police officers is now in police custody and on suspicion 
of voluntary homicide. We understand uh, that his questioning has just been prolonged. But even as that investigation begins, the suspicion, the fear of the people who came out on the streets uh, last night, as they have when there have been incidents like this in the past, is that the hope of the police had been that their version would be believed and the video uh, would not exist. In fact, uh, what we are expecting here in France tonight is no doubt even more unrest. Certainly, Julia, that is what officials are preparing for. 350 policemen were deployed to Nanterre, that suburb to the northwest of Paris, where the incident took place and where the unrest uh, then followed over the course of the night. What French authorities are preparing for tonight is the deployment of some 2,000 police officers in several suburbs uh, across Paris in anticipation of what they, w they expect will be uh, more anger at this incident. And again, in the context where there have been far too many examples of overzealous police brutality or indeed lethal police intervention when those involved have been unarmed and it has happened all too often in those suburbs of Paris that are least well off. That video is certainly what's driving that anger, as is, of course, the age of the young man, just 17 years old. Kylian Mbappe, the French soccer star, weighing in with that tweet uh, and speaking uh, of his sadness for his country. Others, for well-known French actors, calling for justice for this child. He was just 17 years old. His mother's calling for a march tomorrow in his name, Julia. Melissa yeah. thank you for that. Meanwhile, travellers in the United States suffering from chaos at the airport ahead of the 4th of July weekend. Thousands of flights are being delayed and cancelled amid a spate of severe storms. On Tuesday night, the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, ordered a temporary halt to flight arrivals at all three major airports in the New York City area. Jason Carroll has more. Air travel to the three major New York metro airports grinding to a halt Tuesday night, putting a huge strain on domestic air travel right on the brink of the 4th of July holiday. They pulled us back to the gate and said, everybody off. No sleep. Um, it's certainly been a test of patience. The FAA says a ground stop for all flights going to all three airports is due to the thunderstorms in the New York area blocking arrival and departure routes. This video shot by one passenger arriving in New York Monday night shows the severity of those storms. So I'm traveling to Maine for a work trip and unfortunately every flight just there has been delayed. I don't even have my luggage, it's been over two days and I still haven't even seen Maine. The problem started days ago when storms hit near major airline hubs in the mid-Atlantic and East Coast. That coupled with air traffic control staffing shortages created a ripple effect nationwide. On Tuesday, more than 7,000 flights were delayed and more than 2,000 canceled. On Monday, nearly 9,000 flights were delayed nationwide. Where is the manager? The frustration is palpable at Newark and LaGuardia airports. Yeah, five hours on the plane took us off. T pilots timed out. Two more crew members timed out. Started pushing back each flight 45 minutes, 45 fo minutes, 45 minutes. Lost another pilot to timeout. Finally canceled the flight around 7.30. Passengers were subjected to impossibly long lines and were left desperately trying to rebook flights with few options. Our rebooking that they gave us by default is for like July 2nd. Yeah, our flight also got canceled. <laughs> I was talking to some other passengers, they were saying that even when they try to book it, all filled. The whole process leaving this passenger defeated. 
People have planned these vacations for like a long time. Sorry. It's been a long couple of days. Many passengers angry with the airlines for not offering more support, particularly United Airlines, which saw the most delays. I will never fly with United again. United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby blamed the FAA for the delays, saying in a memo to staff, the FAA failed us this weekend. Pete Montine joins us now from Reagan National Airport in Virginia. Pete, it's uncomfortable at any time. It's pretty bad when it heads into a holiday weekend. Do we have any sense of, of how long what's been created by these storms are going to last before they can get the schedule back up and, and running and get these people to where they're going to go? It's been building for days, Julia. But yeah. the question now is whether or not the airlines can piece it back together by Friday when they're expecting so many people to travel by air here in the U.S. The TSA anticipates 2.8 million people to pack onto commercial airliners on Friday. That's the highest number we'll likely see since the start of the pandemic. But we know that when the deck of cards comes tumbling down, and that really started to happen on Saturday at airports on the East Coast, it takes days for them to piece it together. So what we're watching right now is really the recovery. Just check FlightAware. 696 flight cancellations nationwide here in the U.S. More than 1,200 delays. That's only about a third of what we saw yesterday, but the day is still pretty young. In fact, those three ground stops at the New York area airports yesterday, really incredible. In fact, at one point at LaGuardia, they had no space to put planes at gates. It was almost gridlock on the ground, according to an FAA alert, putting planes in pretty much any nook and cranny of taxiway that they could find. The delays and cancellations today look a lot like they did yesterday. Newark, LaGuardia, JFK, Boston, and Chicago O'Hare. Those are the top airports. Right now, United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby says this is simply the FAA's fault. It's mostly because of air traffic controller shortages, he said, really snowballing on top of weather. And that started on Saturday, continued into Sunday, and then we've seen what's happened on Monday and Tuesday. So we'll see now if the airlines can pull out of the dive. But it's United Airlines that has really taken it on the chin. So far, about 300 cancellations by United uh, for its flights nationwide today. We're talking about 1 in 10, but day still pretty young here, Julia. could rise even more. And by the way, this is having an impact on international flights. We heard from one passenger who was simply trying to get from Newark to South Africa. That's a big route for United Airlines. Had to sleep on the floor to wait for her flight to finally come in. It's really having a snowball effect here, Julia. Yeah, I was going to ask you about international flights, particularly if um, there's congestion even on the, on the runways and with available gates. Um, never mind the storm. Ouch, is all I can say. Pete, I know you'll stay across it. Thank you for joining us. Pete Montine there. All right, straight ahead. Hong Kong's New York state of mind. The owner of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange hits the Big Apple in search of new growth opportunities and investors. We'll discuss that and the outlook with the CEO of HKEX. Plus, Joe Biden's fiscal bazooka, the U.S. president on the road to promoting his Bidenomics agenda. He says it's transformational. Critics say mm, less than sensational. Stay with us. We've got the details. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, 
Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. The owner of the third largest stock market in Asia is hailing an important moment in its history with a special cross-continent, and might I say extremely expensive perhaps, cab ride. The Hong Kong Exchange and Clearing Limited, better known as the HKEX, is signaling its move to New York City with this video showing a famous red Hong Kong taxi crossing oceans and arriving in Lower Manhattan. The HKEX not only christening its New York office openings, but also hoping to expand to London soon. The goal is to attract more overseas investors and encourage international listings at a time, I think, when many fear further U.S.-China economic de-risking and certainly decoupling. The firm's also announcing what it calls a significant milestone for Hong Kong markets, the launch of a new platform that will allow investors to trade Hong Kong-listed stocks like Tencent and Alibaba in both Hong Kong dollars and the Chinese renminbi. It's all part of the HKEX's goal to be a conduit between investors in the East and the West. And Nicolas Aguzin is the CEO of Hong Kong Exchange and Clearing Limited, and he joins us now. Nicolas, fantastic to have you on the show. We were supposed to have this conversation last week when you were in New York, and I apologize that it got delayed, but we are now talking. Talk to me about the conversations you had with investors here in the United States and what the message was. Thank you, Julia. Great to be here. And it was a great week uh, in New York. And uh, we had a lot of interest from people that have not been able to spend as much time as they want in this part of the world as a result of you know, COVID over the last three, four years. So um, it's great to be reconnecting again and, and for us to be opening our first office in the U.S. is, is really a great opportunity to, to hear what they're interested around. Of course, they, they, they all want to talk about what's happening in the world of geopolitics, but they also want to, to know about the new things that are being implemented in the exchange, the new type of connectivity initiatives, whether it's around ETF connectivity, swap connectivity, and, and, and how they can be closer to a market that has been quite underinvested recently. Absolutely. I mean, give us a sense of that in, in particular. What kind of flows have you seen? Because you and I were talking in, in Davos back in January, and you were already mm-hmm. telling me that the sort of first three weeks of the year had been huge in terms of flows. And this real sense of a reopening, particularly of China post-COVID, was creating a huge amount of excitement. There was a lot of expectation, especially around the turn of the year with the reopening of uh, China, that the market would see significant growth. And we saw a lot of flows in January and February. It, It did turn a little bit lower in March, April, May. 
And, um, and, and what we're seeing is that the investors are trying to calibrate what that growth of China is going to be and what impact that's going to have in, in a lot of the companies that are traded in our markets. Now, what we've seen is that investors have been actually uh, participating quite actively in, in some of the derivatives markets that we have, mm. not only to access Hong Kong, but to access Asia through Hong Kong. So um, that part of the market has been quite active. It is still under under some some pressure in general in terms of like all the geopolitical environment, the macro environment. But but I would say that um, the the new products that we have on the pipeline are, is something that's uh, keeping investors quite quite excited. Yeah, which do you think is the biggest driver to your point? And we don't have to get into the the where's and what fors of it, but is it the geopolitics perhaps that's the biggest driver, or is it the the macro concern? Because there was great excitement earlier on this year about the the growth of China, and we actually had the premier saying yesterday um, that look, we are going to hit that five percent growth target this year. Um, stimulus clearly, I think, would help, and it would also allay some of the concerns. But the geopolitics is tougher to solve for. And for an investor, I think that is also a concern at this moment, too, clearly. Yeah, I think I think they all play into each other mm. from um, a macroeconomic point of view. I mean, at the beginning of the year, the expectations was that we were seeing all of a sudden retail sales in the first quarter going up like 12 percent. And that um, gave uh, some sense that growth could be significantly higher than the 5 percent targeted by the government. Then. By the uh, beginning of the second quarter, what we started seeing that the manufacturing sector was having a bit of a slowdown and that cooled down some of the expectations. And now I would say that most of the analysts fall in the range of five to six percent. Of course, as, as you might expect, geopolitics play um, a role into what's happening. And, and depending on the day, there is some announcement one way or another and that moves the market. Um, then when we combine that also with what's happening around the interest rate environment and the expectation at the beginning of the year that interest rates were con- going to continue going down. And then then we now have like a expectation that there may be still a little bit more of like um, uphill uh, efforts around the interest rate. Then that, that created a, a difficult environment that lacked the conviction to play one way or another. Yeah, particularly if you're a foreign investor and you're looking a long way from home, you, the sense is to stay close to home um, if you are more uncertain than you have been perhaps in the past. Speaking of that, let's talk about the um, dual counter scheme. So this is allowing certain Hong Kong listed um, stocks, like I mentioned, Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu is another one, to be traded in both the Hong Kong dollar, but also the Chinese yuan. What's the message that that sends and what proportion of the trading in those stocks can you see whether today or in the future being traded in the, in the Chinese yuan specifically? Yeah, I mean, one, one of the reasons why this is done is because we have a special program here whereby the exchanges on the mainland, Shenzhen and Shanghai, which are very, very liquid. I mean, they, they trade about one trillion renminbi per day. I mean, they're very, very liquid. And those people today have to purchase stocks in Hong Kong, in Hong Kong dollars, creating some, some inefficiencies. So what we're trying to do is to make sure that when those investors in the mainland buy stocks in Hong Kong, they can do it a bit more seamlessly. Mm. And that should create a bit of demand. Now, that is not fully implemented yet. That we're, we're working on that. But that is the ultimate objective. 
And then also there's about uh, one trillion renminbi, uh, foreign renminbi, it's called CNH, deposited offshore in Hong Kong. And that is, you know, a very interesting target that they could invest in, um, in these types of products. So the, so the hope would be to create much more vibrancy in the market, much more liquidity. We also implemented a system of market makers that will make that the stocks in both the renminbi counter and the Hong Kong dollar counter are constantly managed in a way so that there's, there's no huge discrepancy in prices in one counter versus the other. Yeah, so it's about unlocking some of that liquidity and helping clients manage the foreign exchange risk, ultimately, whether they're in the mainland or they're holding, to your point, offshore um, Chinese renminbi, CH with the H in there um, specifically. Okay, let's talk about the IPO outlook as well. And as you and I have discussed in the past, um, the opportunities perhaps for businesses that are listed elsewhere to have a dual listing um, in Hong Kong, for example, what's the benefit of a company perhaps that's looking at a dual listing to come to Hong Kong rather than, say, going to somewhere in Europe, to the United Kingdom or the United States as their secondary market? Give us the, give us the best reasons for coming to Hong yes. Kong. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Julia. This is like a very good one because as of this year, and this is something totally new, brand, brand new as of March of this year, historically, Hong Kong was a market where mostly international investors would go to invest in mostly Chinese companies. And um, as of March of this year, the regulatory bodies in the mainland, what they did is they are allowing investors from China, from the mainland, that this huge set of investors, as as I mentioned, that's like one trillion renminbi per day, to invest in international companies. Any international companies, the only condition is that they need to be listed in Hong Kong. So that opens a whole world for that investor base from the mainland to be accessible to any company around the world. So a company that lists in Hong Kong can not only have all the investors, that international investors that traditionally invest in New York, in London or in Hong Kong. I mean, they're all, you know, available, but also the domestic investors mm-hmm. that can only invest in the mainland and in Hong Kong. So you get the best of both worlds and you can do this in one international market with like common law and all the uh, regulatory um, environment that in international investors and issuers are very used to. So this is very unique. There's no other market in the world that can achieve this. Yeah, it's an important point to make, and it's about connecting the dots for the, for the investment opportunity, not without challenges, as we discussed, right. but um, significant changes taking place. Um, Nicola, come back and talk to us soon, please. Um, I always run out of time rather than the questions to ask you. <laughs> Great to have you on. Um, Nicola Agusana, the CEO of the Hong Kong Exchange and Clearing Limited, sir. Thank you. Thank you. OK, still to come here on First Move. Forget Reaganomics. The White House wants to switch the conversation to... Bidenomics. We'll explain what that might look like after this. Welcome back to First Move. A little bit of stress, maybe we'll call it caution in early trade on Wall Street this Wednesday as investors await fresh comments 
on the state of the global economic outlook from leading central bankers. They're appearing as part of a panel discussion at a summit in Portugal this hour. We like the location. Chip stocks certainly under a bit of stress. Shares of NVIDIA and AMD lower amid reports the Biden administration is looking to place export restrictions on artificial intelligence semiconductors sold to China. And finally, a stressful session for bank stock investors. Federal Reserve stress test results coming out after the closing bell this Wednesday. They're an important look at how major financial institutions are doing. But the data was collected before the recent stresses and failures of U.S. regional banks. So still questions to be asking in light of that and beyond these tests. Now, Reaganomics is history. Bidenomics is in. It's a centerpiece of President Joe Biden's 2024 re-election campaign. But what does it actually all mean? Expect to hear a lot about ensuring the wealthy pay their fair share of taxes to generate enough revenue to invest in the middle class. Here's what the White House press secretary had to say about it this week. We believe Reaganomics doesn't work. We've been very clear. We believe that trickle-down a trickle-down economy uh, doesn't work. It has not worked. That is shown to be the case for decades now. And so what we have been very clear, you hear me say this all the time, building an economy from the, from the middle out and bottom up, that's what we want to do. Christine Romans joins us now. The problem is when you start mentioning Bidenonomics or Reaganomics, even for right. you and me who are economists, our eyes start to glaze over. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the biggest challenge here, though, is irrespective of what's going on and what you're announcing and what you're promising, if the public's sceptical and don't think yeah. you've done a good job so far, you've got one heck of a hurdle. So this is a White House trying to sell this message, right? Because for so long, you've been hearing complaints about Biden inflation, you know, the inflation problem in the economy. Inflation is coming down. I mean, 11 straight months of inflation uh, slowing. And so where you're starting to see some successes, you've got a White House that needs to remind Americans what they stand for, right? Not the inflation story of 2022, but they stand for buttressing the middle class. And that's what they say Bidenomics is. You've heard them talk about getting broadband. We, yesterday, a big announcement about getting broadband to the 7% of Americans who don't have high-speed internet access, uh, making sure that's like you know, electricity in, from FDR in the, in the New Deal, uh, trying to lower costs for things, nickel and diming of people, lowering, lowering insulin costs and, and using uh, the government's power to negotiate uh, for Medicare. That's where they're trying to remind people of things they've already done that are focused on the middle class. And that's what their whole, to, you know, this whole Bidenomics idea is. And, and I'll say, you know, they've got a tough sell here because the polls show people still stinging from the COVID crisis and high inflation, and they just don't feel that great about the economy. One poll, poll do you approve of the way Joe Biden is handling the economy? 66% disapprove in the most recent CNN poll. So this is the White House out there trying to show people what we have done, what they have done for the, the you know, the, the kitchen table economics. And, and that's what they're going to try to sell. The president will be speaking later today in Wisconsin, and he will be delivering that message in person. Yeah. What it's going to come down to is whether inflation is significantly lower and whether the economy can avoid recession, I think, bottom line. Um, Christine, yeah. great to have you with us. Thank you. See you. Christine Romans there. And later on today, Richard Quest will be speaking with Jared Bernstein. He's chair of the Council of Economic Advisors on Quest Means Business. Now, 
we take a little trip to the Seychelles. How about that? Famous for beautiful beaches and clear blue seas, the island nation has been a must-visit destination now for decades. But the question is, how do you best monetize while protecting one of your most valuable resources? Eleni Jakos got the tough job and has been to find out. When you live on an island, the ocean can be something of an obsession. It's where life happens for many people. It's a source of income. The term blue economy was born from this. It's a concept where marine resources are used sustainably while also promoting economic growth. I've come to meet the man who can help me make sense of this all. For someone like me, seeing this beauty, I'm in absolute awe. But you're doing something really important. Because many countries that have resources... Um, you know, it's either oil or it's gold and there's so many other commodities. But your major commodity is that. It's the ocean as well. It is the ocean. That is your oil. But you have to preserve it. Of course we do. So tell me about the blue economy and what, what you do. Okay, the blue economy is all more about the sustainable use or the sustainable development of the ocean. This is how um, uh, it was introduced in the, in the country as a pathway towards uh, the creation of jobs through the use of the ocean, the improvement of livelihood of our community through the use of the ocean in high consideration um, given to, um, towards uh, the preservation and conservation of the ocean. So this is what the blue economy it is for us. It is a combination or an integration of um, uh, the aspect of social development, economic development, as well as preservation of, uh, of the ocean. So this is an important part of the economy, right? So you've got to make sure that it's sustainable and you've got to make it work. What is the biggest challenge, would you say, in what you do, in making sure that it is sustainable? The, the main challenge in Seychelles right now is um, uh, it has to do with um, uh, capacity. You know we are a very small country and um, we are a developing country and our, our workforce is, I would say, let's, let's use the word new, and um, we are evolving and we are still um, developing. So um, our main issue right now it has to do with um, capacity. We do not have all the specialized skills that we require to push forward certain specific development in the country. You know, when I think of the Seychelles, I mean, this is an East African country, basically, right? It's an island on the East African coast. It's part of Comesa. It has strong African ties as well. Um, when you look at how successful Seychelles has been in terms of tapping into the blue economy, what would you say the biggest lesson is for other countries wanting to develop their blue economies? The biggest lesson is, uh, is uh, like uh, you, you need to get your community involved in this development. Some people see development or strategy from a top-down strategy and some see it from a bottom-up strategy. But I will say it's a combination. You need to get your people, your community involved because they, will, they, they are one of the main factors and they are the, one of the main beneficiaries of this development. Once they, are, they understand the blue economy, they understand the contribution of the blue economy in their life, the contribution of the ocean in their life. This is when they will participate actively in this development. Coming up after the break, building a future business by harnessing the power of artificial intelligence. We're going to be speaking to the startup Databricks about their plans to help. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. 
Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. If you've not heard of ChatGPT or generative AI in the last few months, well, well dodged. But most businesses just can't avoid it, whether small or large. The question of how to harness and utilize it to get to competitive edge with clients is key. Step forward, Databricks. It's a data storage and management startup that's now doing lots of deals that it says will enable clients to build low-cost language models trained on their own data rather than perhaps taking it from somewhere else. The idea is that it will make the process easier, cheaper and quicker. The company says it serves over 50% of the Fortune 500 companies today, and that includes the likes of AT&T, Shell, Walgreens, and Warner Brothers Discovery, of course, the parent of CNN. And this week, it organized a special data AI summit in San Francisco to discuss the lightning speed of recent developments, among a few other things. And Ali Gossi is the co-founder and CEO and joins us now. Ali, you've clearly been very busy and we have lots to discuss, but I want to start simple and then we can add the layers. What does Databricks provide to its clients today? Yeah, it's very simple. So this world of AI really only exists thanks to the data that you feed it. But believe it or not, the world of data and AI has been separate. So big, large enterprises, they would have to buy separate data software called data warehousing and separate AI software called data lakes to make this work. And what Databricks has done is being able to unify these two so that you can get your data and your AI in one place. And that's all the rage now. Everyone wants data and AI together because everybody wants to build their own you know, generative models, large language models, and these kind of things. Yeah, actually, I love how simply you've pulled that together, quite frankly, because our regular viewers will know that we talk about the data requirements to train these AI models and the importance of the accuracy of it and, and how things can go wrong if you don't have good quality or tailored data for whatever it is that the purpose that you're doing. Um, why is it so simple for you to do this when we see big companies um, outsourcing some of the data training and the models to other people? Why are you able to do this and allow smaller companies and big companies to use their own data to train AI? It's historical roots of this technology. So this data warehousing technology has its roots in what Oracle used to do. And there was no AI related to it. Uh, the AI technology came out of companies like Google, Facebook, Twitter. And the folks that started Databricks, my co-founders, we were researchers at UC Berkeley, which receives a lot of its funding in the you know, 2000s from Silicon Valley tech company. And we got to see what they were doing in the early days. And what they were doing is they were combining the data with the AI, and that's how we're doing these magical things. Uh, so we wanted to simply just take that, democratize it, bring it to everyone. So it's just, you know, we had slightly different roots. We were sort of rooted in Silicon Valley tech, whereas this old, uh, old school data warehousing uh, comes from, you know, much more older technologies that Oracle actually, frankly, had invented. How many of the companies that you serve, and I understand what you're saying, have enough and the quality of data required to train the AI systems that they want to, to give their customers the right products or the right services? Is it as simple as you're making oh, it? I guess is data. my question. Yeah. Oh, they have the data. They have the data. They've been collecting the data for many, many years, 10, 20 years. They haven't necessarily known what to do with it. But this sort of whole big data 
era that happened where all these big enterprises were collecting large data sets. And then we have the cloud vendors. The three cloud vendors, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Google, have been saying for a long time, hey, everyone needs to move to the cloud. Please give us your data. So they made it really, really cheap to store this data almost for free in the cloud. So as a result, lots of people have been storing this data. So they have the data. The problem they have are twofold. One, it's a people and organization and process problem. How do you get the existing organization that you've had around for 100 years to revamp it and reorganize it so that they can embrace AI? The second problem they have is how do you get the technology uh, to be much more modern so that they can do these kind of things, so that they can ask questions about the future and not just these data warehousing, backwards looking questions where you can ask what was my revenue last week, uh, but rather ask what's it going to be next week? Okay, but there's loads of different problems and solutions there. The storage of all the data on the cloud, the ability to analyze that data, the ability then to take that data, train a model and create AI-driven products. Are you saying that you provide all of those things in one? Absolutely, and with the most recent acquisition uh, that we're announcing at the conference actually today, uh, we get the full package end-to-end. -end. So everything from, we call it A to Z, getting your data in, cleaning it, getting it in good shape, to getting basic insights about the past. So data warehousing, we can do that. But also then starting to train your own models and then start asking them questions about the future. And it turns out, if you want to do it for specialized tasks, so a lot of large enterprises, they have a specific problem they want to solve really well. Uh, then the off-the-shelf models, the chat GPTs and those things, don't work as well. So they have to build their own specific model for that use case. And that's what the latest acquisition is about. So we're very excited about that. So who's your most fierce competitor? Uh, I, I always say it's actually ourselves. If we can <laughs> Don't give me the PR response. Don't give me the PR response. Who, who would you say you're out there competing with? Look, I would say uh, that we, Microsoft? if we continue innovating, we will, no, I would not say that. I would actually say that the cloud vendors are our uh, partners. Actually, right. all three cloud vendors are investors in Databricks. I'm uh, sure. You know, Amazon, Google, Microsoft are investors. Uh, they have competing products. They have sub-products that sometimes compete with what we do. But you would have to stitch them together. And then what we're seeing today is that most of our customers want to be multi-cloud. They want to be on multiple clouds. Uh, so really, it's for us uh, to innovate in this next layer and push the boundaries forward. If we do that, uh, I frankly don't think there, are, there is any competition. Uh, if we, uh, if we you know, stagnate and uh, we don't continue innovating, yeah, then someone else will do that. Okay. What was your response, Ali, when we had the industry saying, look, there needs to be a six-month development pause. Then a few weeks ago, we had big industry players, developers, researchers saying that we're headed for AI Armageddon. What was your gut instinct when they said that, other than, oh, my goodness, what does this mean for my business? Yeah, look, the question is this. Is we have to understand what these AI models are doing. And by having open research and having open source models and helping us understand what's going on inside of these AI models, we can actually better align them, better understand what's going on. If something goes wrong, we'll have all the millions of researchers around the planet that understands that. But for that, we have to democratize this data and this AI. So that's why we frankly did this acquisition of Mosaic ML, because they really democratize so that everyone can build their own. Uh, every organization will be able to build their own uh, machine learning models and understand 
understand what's going on with them. And then researchers can go in and delve in and see why is it answering it this way? Why is it doing that? The better we understand them, the better we can deal with it. Uh, right why now, there are very few companies. I agree, but why isn't democratizing this and giving everybody access um, actually taking a technology that we don't really understand well enough yet? And I think everybody would agree with that, nor the speed at which it's moving and, and make it more out of control in a sense because more people are using it. Ali, what's the best way to regulate this um, at this stage if, if, if you don't believe um, that some kind of Armageddon situation is, is possible in the future. How do we ensure that we limit the dark side and promote and innovate the best parts of, of AI? Yeah, look, so I think that we absolutely uh, should look at regulation. We actually are closely following what they're doing in Europe. It's called EU AI Act. In Canada, mm. it's called IDA, AI Data Act. These are important. Uh, I think actually it's more important to look at what are the use cases where things can go wrong right now. Not this Armageddon sort of, I think that's almost zero probability, uh, but uh, this sort of, hey, someone wants to use this technology for bad purposes, we should regulate that, we should make it illegal, we should understand it. But who has the best opportunity to understand what's going on inside these models? It's the research community worldwide, right? Mm -hmm. If they don't get access to these models, if they don't see what's going on because it's only two, three companies that secretly have the models, then... Who knows what's going on? How would we even know? Uh, we might not even know that something went wrong, right? So I think mm. this has to be an open research collaboration that we do. Then keep in mind, what we are doing is we're helping enterprises. So we're not doing a consumer product. It's not a consumer product that million, billions of you know, kids and anyone and you know, rogue actors can use. What we're doing is we're selling this to enterprises. They have very specific use cases. So Rivian, for instance, uses our technology inside their electric adventure vehicles and they can optimize the battery, they can switch lanes, avoid collisions, or JetBlue can use this technology to communicate with their uh, passengers and customers of what's going on with delays, which terminal should you go to, and sort of guide them through their journey on the plane. That's a very specific use case. I don't think there's huge dangers with those use cases. And there are millions and millions of use cases like that that can make the world a better place, that can make us smarter, that can help us cure diseases and sort of raise standard of living. Should we just stop all that? No, I think is the answer. And you made a great case there. I, I like your point about the specific use cases for businesses too, because I think at times we talk about this in an airy-fairy way, and there are practical, specific uses that we can get from this. And we're already seeing it that, that need to be discussed more. Um, Great to have you on. We'll discuss again soon because clearly there's so much more to discuss, as I always say on the show. Um, Ali, great to chat to you for now. Thank you. The founder and the CEO of Databricks. Great to chat. Welcome back to First Move. Imagine waking up to find you're one or two years younger than yesterday. We love that. Well, that just happened overnight in South Korea, but it's not a case of Benjamin Button disease. Millions of South Koreans are now younger after the country scrapped something called Korean age in favor of the system most of the world uses. Paula Hancocks explains. Asking someone in South Korea how old they are is a far more complicated question than you might think. You may well get three different answers. First of all, there is Korean age, where you're considered a year old on the day you're born, and you become a year older every January 1st. Second, the calendar age. You take the current year, 2023, minus your birth year, and that is your age. Third, international age, the system most countries use around the world where you start at zero and you become a year older on your birthday. 
Now, South Korea has been using a mixture of all three systems for decades. That all changes today, making international age the standard. Most people woke up this morning one or even two years younger. I don't feel like my age changed overnight, but talking to my friends, we all felt good about getting younger. On the one hand, I feel good about being younger, and on the other hand, I'm wondering if this will make things more complicated on paper. This change is to avoid the, quote, unnecessary social and economic costs. President Yoon Suk-yeol has been pushing for this change, and surveys show that the majority of Koreans actually agree that there should be a standardization of age counting. There are some exceptions, though. For example, going into elementary school, military conscription will still keep to the traditional system. So the change is symbolic because... Uh, the things that matter to people, like when you can vote, when you can buy alcohol, when you can buy cigarettes, when you can watch, you know, um, N17 movies, etc., uh, they actually remain exactly the same. It's a change that has been talked about for years, and it is a change that could well confuse for years to come. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. Age is just a number. And that's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.